The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we are, I pray, rightly overwhelmed with the thought that your Son will come again in glory as our husband. He will come to his church to make us his eternal bride. I ask, Lord, that you would take this teaching that is so profound and so over the top, it even compelled the Apostle John to bow down to an angel, make it that good to us. Um, Over the next 45 minutes, Father, I pray you would magnify this truth and do it in such a way, Father, that you would cultivate the deep love that we have for you and for Christ, our husband. Cultivate that love, Father, so that we will wear our wedding garments well, that we will walk each day in faith, that we will walk in the righteousness that you've given us in your spirit. I ask that you would do that, Father, by um, helping us to see maybe a little more clearly this morning that great day, that great wedding, and that great feast to follow. We're not deserving of this, Father. We're not even deserving of this revelation, let alone this wedding to come, but you are worthy, and you've called us to it. And so as those who are now engaged and betrothed to your Son, I pray, Father, that we would be um, rightly stirred this morning. I ask that you would do this, Holy Spirit, It won't be by me and it it won't be by my words, but it can be by your word and it can be by your spirit. So encourage us, strengthen us, give us a desire to be faithful to our groom until he comes. And do that, Father, for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the sermon is Here Comes the Groom. And if you're a little bit older, then you know that the traditional saying is what? Here comes the bride. I thought that was kind of funny, so I did a little play on words. I generally don't do that with my titles because I don't have that type of creative skill set. But there you go, that's the, that's the max. No, it gets no better than that. Um, if you were here last week, then you had a chance to hear from the testimony of the Apostle John hearing the multitudes cry out from heaven. And they were crying out and they were rejoicing and they were praising God because God had finally, once and for all, And we've been working through this for 19 chapters. He once and for all judged Babylon. He came and he destroyed all of her idolatry, all of her sin, all of her destruction. He laid to waste. So the Babylon, all evil, all sin, all deception is no more in the story. And that's that's so good and we're so excited about that. But then John, as he continues to get this end of the time vision, and we are there, we're at the very end of the story. We're in the last few pages, literally, of the story and the Bible itself. As John gets there, he hears another over-the-top exaltation coming from heaven. In fact, it's actually greater than in verse 1, it talked about uh, the sound of this great multitude. Here in verse 6, it's even greater than what they were rejoicing over in verse 1. Look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6 of Revelation chapter 19, John said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. And then he describes it like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So he takes these superlatives, one on top of the other, and he said, You thought that that first cry of hallelujah, praise God, was good in verse 1. He said, It's even greater now, this praise for what God has done. And so the question is, well, what is it in verse 6 that's eliciting greater praise than in verse 1, where they were praising God for his final judgment upon Babylon and the city of man? What is it here? What has God done to elicit this ecstatic praise from heaven? And if you're not shocked by this, I pray that you are. It's they're rejoicing over a wedding. Yes, a, a wedding. In fact, this is the first time it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. We're going to see it again when we get to chapter 21. They are singing, they're praising, and they're rejoicing that John hears, he sees that God's perfect reign is culminating in this glorious wedding. And not just any wedding. It's the wedding of all weddings. It's the wedding, as you know, if you know your Bible, between God's Son, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. And that means if you're in the church, that includes you. This is your wedding. This is your wedding 
he's talking about. Friends, if, if your heart this morning is not stirred by this passage, I know of no other passage in the entire Bible. If this does not stir you to love Christ more and praise God more for the wedding to come, I don't know of another passage that we could possibly present to you and you not be so overwhelmed with the magnitude of what is taking place here. This wedding between you and the Son of God, Jesus Christ. John gets a glimpse of God's perfect reign, and that is, he's reigning perfectly now over all creation. It's the climax of human history. All rebellion, all sin, all evil has been finally judged. It is no more. It is in the lake of fire here. And at the same time, all those who had turned from sin and put their faith in Christ are going to participate in the great wedding between God and man. Now that's an amazing thought. Not just citizens of the kingdom, that's incredible. Not just servants of God, faithful servants of God, that's incredible. Not even just as sons and daughters. All those, I believe, are sufficient to put us over the top in our affection for God. What the Bible says here and what John is hearing here is that you're going to be a bride. You're, you are going to be part of the bride married to God, married to his son. If you came here this morning downcast, if you are struggling in any way, if you're wondering if following Jesus Christ is worth it in light of the hardship that it brings upon your life right now, then I want to encourage you this morning with a few truths that are so over the top. Listen, they're so over the top, the angel who's speaking to John has to say to him, these are the words of God. John, listen, these are the words of God. They're that good, yes. I know even John who walked with Jesus is not believing it because it's that amazing. So are you ready for that? Are you ready for a truth that is so extraordinary and so amazing that it will cultivate the deadest of hearts? Oh, I need you to get this one, my beloved. We cannot miss this teaching today. We cannot. It's too good to, for our ears to be deaf to it. These truths are so glorious. I want to bring you into that glory. I want you to taste it. I want you to see it. I want you to be excited about it. I want to show you three things. As I show you from these verses, the great wedding, it should compel you to do three things. So there's doing attached to our seeing. We're going to see it, and then we're going to do. What are we going to do? Number one, we're going to wait for the wedding. We're going to wait well for the wedding. Number two, we're going to prepare for the wedding. And number three, we're going to be invited to the wedding. Wait for it, prepare for it, and be invited to it. The theme is simple. Your future wedding requires present vigilance. Your future wedding to Jesus Christ requires that you be vigilant now in this life until you see your groom. Amen? All right, point number one, wait for the wedding. Look at verse six. John says that I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out what? We heard this last week. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So they cry out, Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. And they're praising God because he now reigns, perfectly reigns. It's not praise for his future reign. It's not praise for his current reign where sin and rebellion are still part of his creation. This is praising God for reigning perfectly, exercising his judgment perfectly, as we saw last week, so that evil is no more, and consummating the divine wedding, the wedding between God and man, between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. So this is a command to praise God to the utmost. Why? Latter part of verse 7. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. They're saying praise God, exalt God, rejoice over God because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And they're, they're praising God because God's the one who made it happen. God's the one who sent his son to redeem sinful man, his church. God's the one who makes it possible for us to be wed as sinners saved by grace, to the perfect, righteous lamb. This allusion to marriage, this allusion to marriage is one that we see both in the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel is, 
is explained and identified as the bride of God. In fact, under the Old Covenant, Hosea chapter 2, listen to what was revealed to the prophet. He said, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Right. So in that day, in that day when Christ comes in glory and we, the bride, are united to him, I will betroth you to me. Betroth is a, an old-fashioned way of saying engaged. I will betroth you to me forever in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. In the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall you, God, rejoice over Israel. In other words, we see this metaphor of God as the groom or the husband and God's people, Israel, and then the church as the bride. The new covenant metaphor is actually even more specific and more detailed. We know clearly that it's not just God who's the groom, it's Jesus Christ who's the bridegroom, and we know specifically that it's the bride. The bride is the church. It's those who are saved by grace through faith in him. Mark chapter 2, and if you remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples about fasting, he slid in this extraordinary truth. Mark chapter two, verse 19, he said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom, speaking of himself, can they fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I'm the bridegroom, you're the bride. It's extraordinary. He's talking about fasting. In Ephesians five, the apostle Paul, when he's talking about um, household rules and how we are to live in the context of marriage. He intertwines this extraordinary teaching. He's talking about husbands and wives in the context of a house, and then he draws in this incredible divine marriage between Jesus Christ and the church. Listen to what he says, Ephesians 5, 22 and following. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Listen to this. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of of the church. And then he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ does the church. Then he says this, verse 32, Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ the groom, the church the bride. You're not overwhelmed, I can tell. The Old Testament and the New Testament, this Intimacy of relationship between God and man here is described in the context of a wedding, of a marriage, with God being the husband and the church being the bride. Now what's unfortunate about hearing a message, and maybe, maybe that's why I'm not getting the right response that I should be getting from the extraordinary nature of this. You know, if we were in the deep south, you'd all be saying amen, amen a thousand times. I could even speak, you'd be saying it so much, and I have to tell you to settle down. But we're not there, I get that. We're in Silicon Valley, and we're very quiet in Silicon Valley. In our cultural moment, in our cultural moment, there's a reason I believe that this teaching, which is one of the more profound teachings of all scripture, falls on deaf ears here. In our culture, we've all but destroyed the beauty and the sanctity of marriage. We've diminished it so much that when we talk about the marriage of the lamb to come, which is supposed to elevate us and encourage us, it falls flat, but it ought not. You know, with the Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage, which you all know about, the loss we have the loss of distinction between male and female, let alone husband and wife today. And here in the beautiful state of California, we have no-fault divorce, which means it's not to be wed until death do you part. It's to be wed until you change your mind or find someone younger, better, and faster. Marriage is no longer viewed as the divine act of God bringing two people together to become one. But the reason that John hears here in verse 6 the voice of a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise God, is because the residents of heaven understood the overwhelming truth and the magnificent beauty of the Lamb of God being married to his people, the church. They get it. And so they're singing and they're extolling and they're praising God. If you remember back in the Genesis account after God created all that is seen and unseen, but before he made Eve, God said this, Genesis 2.19, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Remember, all the animals were brought before Adam, and Adam named all the animals. But there was no helper for Adam. Adam was alone. He wasn't complete. He wasn't whole. There was no one suitable for him. And so what did God do? God made Eve for Adam. And this was Adam's response. Genesis 2.23, the man said, speaking of Adam, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, listen, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. They shall become like one. One flesh. The greatest intimacy that can be experienced at hand between two people on this side of heaven is between a man and a woman becoming one flesh. Physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy. This is what God gave as a blessing to mankind, husband and wife, in the context of a covenant marriage. In other words, Adam was not complete. He wasn't whole without Eve, nor Eve without Adam. Together, they were whole. They were complete. But the institution of marriage, as you know, was not just as a blessing for mankind. It was an image. It was a metaphor. It was a signpost to point us to the ultimate wedding and the ultimate marriage, which was to be between God and mankind forever. But we know with the fall of man, sin entered God's good creation. And what did man do? We filed for divorce. In Genesis chapter 3, when we sinned against God, we said to God, we do not want you to be our husband. We do not want you to be our provider and our protector. We sinned against God. We filed for divorce, no longer longer wanting that intimate relationship. And the result was what? Man is not whole. Sin comes in and sin makes a, a mess of God's creation. And for mankind, it means that we're not whole. We're not satisfied. We're not complete because we're missing our husband. We're missing God. And so man in his foolishness, what have we done now? For millennia, we've tried to find other husbands, have we not? I mean, that is the heart of idolatry. If God is not going to be our husband, then we're going to find another. And so we go after money, we go after sex, we go after entertainment, power, lust, prestige, whatever it is that will make us whole, that will make us satisfied, that will bring that true joy. And we try so hard. I mean, one of the things about the Western world that is truly sad looking at through Christian eyes is how desperately we try to find joy that lasts and it doesn't last, does it? We know that. You seek it at work, you seek it at home, you seek it in friendships, you seek it in entertainment and if you're really pressed, you seek it in drugs and alcohol and something to alter your state of mind and you never find it. You never find it because you were made for God. You were made for union with God. And only he as your husband can bring that wholeness and that completion and that satisfaction to the depth of your souls. Only he can. And so Jesus, this was so amazing, out of his great love for us, he came the first time to do what? He came the first time to make us his bride-to-be. He came the first time to betroth himself to us, to engage us, in that future wedding. And what John's seeing here is he said he's going to come back and he's going to consummate the wedding. It wasn't just an engagement. It wasn't just being betrothed for God, to God for, for two millennia. It is to be married to God, to bring the wholeness and the completion and the satisfaction back to broken man. It was for Jesus to come and complete us by becoming our eternal husband. And the intimacy of an eternal marriage. A husband who will, he'll love us perfectly. Perfectly. Like a good husband from Ephesians 5, he will protect and provide for us perfectly. He will nourish and cherish us, his church, perfectly. And we, the faithful bride, will love and serve and honor him as the husband, as the lamb who is worthy of what? All glory and honor and praise for now and forever. We will love him like that. You know, brides have often talked, and I've had the pleasure and at times the curse of working with a bride who wants the perfect wedding, right? I want the perfect wedding and the perfect dress and all the trappings that go with it. Well, that's, that's tough because perfection's really not found here on this side of heaven, But brides will talk about the perfect wedding or or the perfect marriage of their dreams. And there's nothing wrong with dreaming about that as long as you know that that wedding is with God and not with any other person. That perfect 
marriage. And perfect love is between God and man where love, true biblical love, true other-centered love is given and received perfectly forever. And that's what your heart really wants. And that means, my beloved, that you don't want to settle. The announcement that the marriage has come means that for us now, it's, we're waiting for it. And so we don't want to chase after a false God. We don't want to chase after a husband or an idol that's not Jesus Christ and marry ourselves to it. Jesus, your eternal husband, he's, he's waiting for you. And so we had a chance of saying what? I will wait for you, Jesus. You're waiting for me. I will wait for you. The only one. He's the only one that can complete you. He's the only one that can make you whole. He's the only one that can bring satisfaction forever. Now that's, that's a tall task, is it not? to bring you satisfaction for all eternity. It's only Christ. It's only your eternal husband. And that's why they were erupting in heaven. That's why the multitudes were singing out, the wedding of the Lamb has come. This is the end of the plan. This is the climax of the story. The climax of the greatest love story ever told is taking place right before our eyes where Jesus Christ, the faithful groom, remember, he had to give up his life to get you. He had to give up his life on the cross to get you. He's going to come back for you. That's how much he loves you. He's going to come back for you. He's going to bring this engagement to an end through marriage. By marrying you, if you're part of the church, his bride. To love you and to enjoy you and for you to enjoy him. Uh, That excites me. I mean, to the very bottom of who I am that thought of being with Christ and that type of intimacy. Jesus is waiting for you, so the question is, are you waiting for him? Are you waiting for him? Are you waiting patiently? You say, well, I I don't know. How would I know I'm waiting? The question is, are you waiting by making yourself ready for him? Point number two, I pray you're still with me, preparing for the wedding. We're called to wait because the wedding is coming. And we're called to prepare ourselves, to make ourselves ready because the wedding is coming. Look at verse seven. Let us rejoice and exult and give him, speaking of the Father, the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's the church, that's you if you're in the church, has made herself ready. So they're erupting with joy, they're erupting with praise because the wedding has come But not just the wedding has come. The bride's ready to be wed. The church is ready to enter into holy matrimony with the living God. Now, according to Jewish custom, if you you don't know this, then I guess I'll tell you. um, To be betrothed, to be engaged, was legally binding. It's not like it is today. You get engaged, you you say, you know what, I changed my mind. You just call off the engagement, right? You give the ring back. Hopefully, you give the ring back, you know. You just call off the engagement. In, in the Jewish culture, once you were betrothed, once you were engaged, that was considered legally binding unto marriage. And so that's one of the reasons, if you remember, when, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant before the angel told him not to divorce her, what was he going to do? He was going to give her a certificate of divorce, right? He was going to do it quietly to honor her. But in his mind, she had broken the engagement, She had broken being betrothed to him because she's pregnant and it wasn't his baby and therefore he's thinking she committed some form of adultery, right? So it was legally binding in their cultural moment. And what the picture that's being painted for us here is that right now, if you're in Christ, listen, if you made a profession of faith and you are following Jesus, you are engaged, you're betrothed to Jesus right now and that is legally binding. Well, that's a good thing to be bound to, the marriage of the Lamb. That's a good thing. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in his, letter, his second letter to Corinth, he actually uses this Jewish custom to talk about our current relationship with Christ right now and our responsibility, listen, to be faithful brides-to-be. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians eleven two. Paul writes, I betrothed you, the church, to one husband, Jesus, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. A pure virgin in other words, Christians saved by grace, you are, you're, you're engaged right now to Jesus. You're awaiting that great wedding when he comes again to get you. 
And just like the bride betrothed to her groom is to keep herself ready by being faithful, by being pure to her future husband, so too are we called to be pure virgins now. You say, well, how do I do that? Look at verse 8. Don't you love how the Bible gives you questions and it gives you the answers to? It's a great book that way. Verse 8. It was granted to her, speaking of the church, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the bride of Christ is made ready in two ways, and they all are in the context of a wedding garment. Think of a a wedding dress. Or for men, you can, you can think of a, a wedding suit. I mean, it's kind of hard. It's, this is a little bit difficult, I think, at times for men to go, I'm, be, I'm being married to a man. Well, it's Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. And the marriage is the intimacy that we enjoy. But I want us to think of the garment that we will have, male or female, in the context of two aspects. This garment must have, first, the, the bride adorns a wedding garment given to her by God. So God gives the church the wedding garment. And, and number two, she lives a life in the context or reflecting that wedding garment that she's now wearing. You say, well, what are you talking about? I don't understand. First, the wedding garment given by God. Look at verse eight again. So it, this wedding garment was granted. It was given her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So the fine linen worn by the bride represents her moral purity, her virginity her ability to be married, in this particular case, her purity to be married, to be fit to marry who? The Son of God. Well, there's no greater fitness required for a bride than to be married to God himself. The reason that so many wedding gowns today, and you probably know this, are still white, is traditionally a white wedding gown meant that the woman who was marrying the man was still a virgin, that she had not given herself to her husband-to-be and she had not given herself to another man. I know most brides wear white regardless, but in the context certainly of the Jewish custom and what is being revealed here, the whiteness represented the purity of the bride getting married. And so for here, um, the, 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 the bride is, is a church and therefore the church must be what? The church must be pure. The church must be righteous and able to marry God. You say, well, that, now I know why it must be given by God, right? The righteousness must come. The purity must come from God because none of us, we know this, none of us come to God as spiritual virgins. None of us do. None of us come to God faithful. We're all unfaithful. We've all, well, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory and the righteousness and the purity of God. Every single one of us have given our lives and our affections to others to idols and to false gods and to the things of this world. As brides, we can say that we have no inherent righteousness in us to bring to God as a bride-to-be. We don't. And we know that. We know in our heart and hearts that it's contaminated by sin through and through. So God must give us our righteousness. He must give us our moral purity. He must make his church fit to marry his son. He must do that, and he does it by grace. He gives it to us freely by grace through faith in his Son. The imagery, I don't think there's any greater imagery in all the Old or New Testament of, of what this looks like than when God was revealing his bride-to-be to the prophet Ezekiel. If you remember from Ezekiel, um, God was talking about Jerusalem, talking about his people and how they had made themselves unworthy, how they had chased after idols and false gods. And he, he uses that in the context of blood, that we've made ourselves bloody by our idolatry and our unfaithfulness as brides-to-be. Listen to what God reveals through Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, God said, And when I passed by you, speaking of his people, speaking of Jerusalem, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood... It's graphic. I said to you in your blood, live, because we were going to die. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, listen with all your might. This is God to his people, the husband to the bride. I'll wait for this to pass, because this is too good. (laughs) 
Listen. God said, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant, a covenant of marriage with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. He's preparing his bride for the wedding. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you in the fine leather. And then I wrapped you in what? Fine linen and covered you with silk. You get the wedding garment. Not because you're worthy, but because God makes you worthy in Christ. So the first essential component of being ready for the Wedding feast of the Lamb is your moral fitness. Your moral righteousness must come from God. It cannot come from you. It's not what you do or what you don't do. There's nothing you can do to make yourself fit for Christ, to be a faithful bride to a perfect groom. And so the heavens are declaring this righteous gift as they're crying out, this gift given freely by grace through faith in the groom himself. But they also reveal something else, and you probably picked this up at the latter part of verse 8. They say essentially this, if you, if you receive the, the wedding garment, you're also going to live a holy life. If you get the garment, if God gives it to you by grace, you're also going to live a holy life. Look at the latter part of verse 8. He said, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, God makes you morally fit, and if he makes you morally fit to marry his son then a product of that will be what? Will be righteous deeds. It'll be the work of the saints. Not good deeds, be very careful. Not good deeds to earn the wedding garment because you can't, no matter what you do, but good deeds that are a product of the garment being given to you and you wearing it. You put on the wedding garment that God has given to you by grace through faith and you will live a life of righteousness. You will pursue holiness. You will desire to be a faithful bride to your groom-to-be. You'll want to be faithful to Jesus. That makes sense, right? I mean, if you've been given that desire, your heart's been changed, you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit, it will produce in your life a life congruent with your garment. Your garment's what? It's fine linen, it's pure, it's bright. Therefore, your life will reflect that as you live. You'll begin to hate sin if you don't hate it already. You'll begin to hate it. And when you struggle and sin, you will repent immediately and seek forgiveness and ask God to strike it from your heart. You'll hate sin in your wedding garment. Your hearts will want to, want to serve and sacrifice for others, not just live for yourself. You put on that wedding garment, it won't just be me, me, and more me. It'll be others. It'll be God. It'll be your husband, Jesus Christ, who you will serve for his glory by pursuing holiness in life, by mortifying sin, by doing what? By sharing the gospel. We talked about this this morning. By being a witness to the world that God is real and that Christ saves and that you've been utterly transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be a witness when you wear this gown. You will share the gospel. You will make disciples. You will grow the kingdom. All of this will be the product, the outworking of God giving that wedding garment to you by grace through faith. In other words, if God has made you ready for the wedding of the Lamb, your life will show it. You'll know it, and others will know it. It'll be revealed for all to see in how you live. It'll be in contrast to how you used to live and the garments you used to wear. Hopefully you did not forget this, Revelation chapter 18. We had a description, remember, of the garments of the beast the fine linen of the beast, all those who belong to nations that were in rebellion against God. Listen to how John describes the garment of the beast in Revelation 18. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, speaking of Babylon, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth had been laid to waste. Luxury, opulence, debauchery, lives committed to self-service and idol worship rather than to others. Those are the garments of Babylon. That's what you used to wear before Christ redeemed you and gave you the wedding garment of eternal life. We know the end is destruction. We know that. So we don't want to wear the garments of Babylon. So we're made ready here. One 
by God making us ready, giving us the fine linen, the, the bright and pure righteousness, the morality we need through faith. And simultaneously, this gift of grace will produce holy living in us. That's you saying, you know what? I, I don't want to wear the garments of Babylon anymore. I don't. I don't want the pearls, and I don't want the gold, and I don't want the jewels. I want to live a life of simplicity and humility for the Lord. I want garments that reveal to the world that I belong to Christ. I want garments that tell the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how good he is. It will be a garment, my beloved, that you will want to wear every day so that you will live as the pure virgin that God has called and equipped you to be. The bride who is in fact ready for the groom's coming to be wed to him. So, question before we get to our last point is a very simple one. Are you ready? If the groom walked through the door right now, are you ready? Do you adorn the wedding garment of God by grace through faith because you believe? You really believe? And does your life reflect that? Do people in your life, family, friends, neighbors, the grocer at the store, do they, do they see you and do they see the image of Christ bearing the gospel and how you speak and how you love and how you testify? Or do you, my beloved, profess Christ like I would say many in the Western church do today, many who are gathered in places just like this today, but still adorn the garments of Babylon? You profess Christ, you've been baptized, you've even joined a, a local church, but your life, for the most part, is still like the life you lived when you were a citizen of Babylon. You haven't changed garments. You haven't lived any differently because your heart has not been made new by Christ. Not truly changed on the inside, and therefore no change on the outside. I love this warning is so severe. Jesus, at the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 22, you probably know this, he told the parable of the wedding feast. Um, listen, listen to this. He's speaking to the chief priests and the Pharisees. These are the guys in their time, the Jews in their time, that thought that they were not only in the kingdom, but they were at the top of the kingdom. That when they died and came in the presence of God, they were going to be seated upon thrones. This is what they believed. Listen to what Jesus says. He's speaking of them now. He said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Speaking of the chief priests and the Pharisees and all those who reject the gospel. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, listen closely, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Friends, do not be hasty in answering this question, are you ready? It is a gospel question. It is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Your being invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb requires appropriate attire. It requires you having the garment of God that produces deeds of righteousness in your life. So John's glimpse of the future, that day when Christ comes to be wed to his bride, tells us one to wait, two to be ready, and I got one more, and I hope you're still with me. We gotta wait, we have to be ready, and you wanna be invited, don't you? You wanna get that invitation in the mail that's all sealed up nice and beautiful, and you wanna hold on to it. Number three, being invited to the wedding. Look at verse nine. And the angel said to me, so the angel speaking to John, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he, the angel, said to me, these are the true words of God. So John is now commanded to write down, this is the fourth of seven Beatitudes. The Beatitude is blessed art thou if what? If something. The fourth of the seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This one 
is saying, listen, if you're invited to this wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, which comes after the consummation of the wedding, then you are truly, truly blessed. Now, historically, this is an amazing thing. Most cultures, most people in most cultures throughout human history have some type of a feast following a wedding. You say, well, how is that possible? How can that be? Well, it's pretty simple, right? We see that eternal truth coming through Scripture. So almost all weddings in all cultures have some type of celebration following the consummation of a man and woman becoming one flesh. Today, I gotta say, we don't do it well in the West. I mean, I say that. We do it well, but it's like for a few hours, it's on one night, usually it's the night of the wedding itself. Everybody's, you know, they gather and there's dancing and there's singing and there's eating and then the whole thing's over. You you know, in Jesus' day, it was seven days. Seven days. Seven days of what? Seven days of eating, seven days of dancing, seven days of drinking, seven days of partying. I mean, it was a feast that would blow ours away. I think we should go back to that. I really do. I think we should get rid of this Western one day. It's crazy to me. I mean, it's a wedding. We're supposed to celebrate it with great fervor, right? So let's do seven days. Let's make that part of our church tradition, all right? Christ Community Church will do seven-day wedding celebrations. I think, I think God would be pleased with that. All right. So here the angel reveals to John that those who are invited are blessed, and they're blessed for two specific reasons. One I'll touch on because we're going to hit it again at the end of 19, and the next one we'll sit on. So first, there are two eschatological suppers, two end-of-the-story suppers. Did you know that? We always talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, but we don't talk about the great supper of God. Maybe we don't talk about it because we don't want to talk about it. One supper is a supper of blessing and joy. The other one is a supper of judgment. At the latter part, roll your eyes down, chapter 19 with me. The great supper of God, verse 17, where he gathers all the birds of the air to do what? Look at verse 18. He gathers the birds of the air to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is the judgment of God that we saw last week. That's the great supper of God. That's not the supper you want to be at. Everybody's going to be at one of these two suppers. One, my beloved one, where you're invited to participate at the table Right, You're brought to the head table to enjoy the meal. And the other one, you are the meal. You're the one being consumed as you're being judged by God. Now, I don't need to tell you it's obvious which one you, you should prefer. It's the one where you're at the table eating with the lamb, not being consumed by it. But escaping the judgment of the great supper of God um, is not the best part of this blessing. That's a good one. I mean, I don't want to diminish that, especially after last week. But it's, it's something greater. Those invited to Jesus' feast are blessed because they're at the feast that's greater than all the feasts. I mean, this is, this is the experience of joy. Listen, with all your might, because we are a joyless people in many ways. This is the experience of joy that is unmatched here in this life. No joy that you can experience in this life. It doesn't matter. The greatest joy, it may, be, it may have been your wedding day. It may be the birth of your children or your grandchildren. It may be the best friends that you have. Whatever that joy is, praise God for it. But this experience, this feast, cannot be compared to even the greatest joy you know now compared to the joy the church will experience at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This marriage supper actually is, is prophesied to and certainly John is thinking about this in Isaiah 25, this, when God talked about, through the prophet, this, this feast, this, this meal after the consummation. Listen to what God said to the prophet Isaiah centuries before John was writing. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, listen, of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. I hope you like to eat and drink because there's going to be a lot of it in the new heaven and the new earth. Yeah, yeah, no, it's real food, real food. He will listen to this. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. We'll see that again in Revelation 21. It is a feast where all the struggles and all the pain and all the suffering that's associated with sin and death and just life as a fallen creature and a fallen world, and it's hard, it's long at times, it will be what? At this feast, it'll be no more. 
It is a feast where your heart will experience truly and perfectly the fullness of joy. The fullness of it. It cannot get any greater. And it cannot be diminished by anything. I don't know about you, my beloved, but even the joy I experience now, it rides right alongside things that suck joy out of me. At least me. This is me. Right? So, in the celebration of a wedding, you know, even weddings that I've, I've presided over, I have this nagging sense of, oh, I hope it goes well. I hope they're married well. I hope for many years of that marriage to be happy. But there's that, that joy is sucked out thinking, what if it doesn't go well? What if they end up in divorce? Or when that baby's born, that, that beautiful baby that's yours or a grandchild, and there's such excitement and there's such joy, and for me there's this, oh, this world. Now they're in it. Now they have to move through it. And then there's that, that joy is diminished by the hope and prayer of their well-being and their safety. Even, my beloved, here, here's a confession. I even struggle vacationing, taking time off, where I know that in this moment I'm not supposed to think about anything I do with ministry or work or all your beautiful faces. I'm not supposed to think about that. And as I'm trying to experience the joy of vacation, it's back there. I'm thinking, oh, well, what about this? And I, I can't separate the, true, the two. Now, that's, that's bad on me. That's a sin, actually. My point is this. Joy here, even the best joy, is contaminated. It's commingled with anxiety and fear and sin. Not at this wedding feast. Pure joy, no anxiety, no fear, no sorrow, no pain, no tears. Not even the thought of a tear. That's how good this feast will be. That's the type of feast you must be at. You can't miss this. I mean, we're, we're, as a culture, we're so desperate for parties. I mean, parties are happening all the time, right? And there's something instinctual about that, not sinful behavior at the party, but the desire to party, to enjoy, to feast. It's in your DNA. It's supposed to be with God, especially here. The party of all parties, the feast of all feasts, the celebration that your heart wants right now will take place here. Jesus, he, he alluded to this. In Matthew chapter eight, if you remember when he was extolling the virtues of the Roman centurion, he said, I, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I don't know if you remember this. This is uh, Ma- Matthew chapter eight, verse 11. He then adds this incredible teaching. He said, I tell you the truth. After, after healing the Roman centurion's servant, he said, I tell you the truth. Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this table, it's going to be a big table. And it's going to be filled with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All those who have repented and put their faith in Christ are going to be feasting at this table. Those who have what? Adorned themselves with wedding garment. Those who what? Who have made themselves ready for this day will be at that table. They will experience pure joy. Not just because they've been set free from their sins, they've been given new glorified bodies to eat physical food, to rejoice, to sing. But they will be blessed and they will rejoice because at the table is the lamb. I mean, that's really it, right? I can go on and on to describe how extraordinary it's going to be the wedding day and the feast afterwards, which will not be one day or seven days, but for all eternity. But it's the lamb at the table with his people that should cause us to be over the top, filled with joy. You've heard it so many times. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, we've said it multiple times in the pulpit. Jesus, after instituting the Lord's Supper with the disciples, he said this, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when what? When I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Christ said, I'm not gonna take a drop until you're with me. I'm not gonna begin the feast until I've gathered my bride, married my bride, and we sit down at the table together so that you can be with him and he can be with you. That's his desire. Is it your desire to experience the love of Christ and to express your love for Christ? This one who's sitting at the table with you. This is how the story ends. This is how the great redemptive story of God ends, celebrating this union, this wedding feast pure, unfettered joy. My beloved, it's so over the top. I mentioned this earlier. The angel of the Lord has to say to John, I imagine John's listening and his eyes are getting bigger and bigger and he, he can't take it in. And so the angel says, these are the true words of God. 
You see, the promises are so extraordinary, so unlike the greatest moments of joy and satisfaction we have on earth, that we have a tendency to not believe it. Right? When something is too good, what do we say? It's too good to be true. Well, this sounds too good to be true. So the angel said, these are the true words of God. He said, well, how can it be too good to be true? You must remember who we're talking about. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. This is the second person of the holy triune God. Right? This is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, one in being with the Father. We're talking about being married to the light of the world, the same person who made our sun and every single star in the entire universe and shines infinitely more brilliant than all of them combined. That's going to be your husband. Your husband is the living water. Your husband is the bread of life that satisfies you completely, makes you whole perfectly. Your husband will be your best friend who comforts you in your time of need. Your husband is the lover of your soul who gave his life to make you his bride. Your husband is your teacher. Your husband is your savior. Your husband is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Your husband is the one who rebelled, who pursued you even when you rebelled against him. He pursued you so that you could be forgiven by him. This is your husband. John's so overwhelmed by the goodness, he does something really stupid. Look at verse 10. John said that I fell down at his feet to worship him, the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. Oh, uh, this angel, this was a rebuke and it was sharp. The angel realized they were both in great danger here. It was a catastrophic blunder. But it's to show us, I think, how extraordinary and over the top the message is. The message is so incredible that John wants to worship the messenger. That's how incredible this message is. That's how overwhelmed John is with the truth that's been revealed that Jesus Christ will marry the church and love her forever. So the angel rebukes John and then is gracious to explain why. Look at verse 10. You must not do that, the angel says. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the Spirit a prophecy. So the angel says, I'm just a messenger like you, and our job is to point everyone and everything to God, to glorify God, to worship God. And even John affirms this. He says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, this is pretty complicated, but to make it real simple, saying this, the testimony concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus did is equal to the spirit-inspired prophecy. True prophecy focuses on the person, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. True prophecy. It will never be contrary to that. In fact, the testimony we get in the New Testament is testifying to who, God, who Christ is and what he's done. John the Baptist, remember, when he sees Jesus coming out to him to be baptized at the Jordan, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sins of the world. The initial testimony in the gospel by John the Baptist. Even God the Father at the transfiguration, you remember this said this, this is my beloved son, this is God the Father speaking, with whom I am well pleased. Do what? Listen to him. His testimony is true. When Jesus asked Peter, who do the people say that I am? And they give him all these crazy answers. And he says, what about you, Peter? Who am I, Peter? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Testifies to who Jesus is and what he's about to do. In John chapter five, as the Jews were trying to kill Jesus, Jesus said to them in love, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and yet it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about what? About me. And then he said, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. For those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are those who have come to Jesus and have found eternal life. It is those who have believed the testimony that Jesus Christ, listen, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They believe that he actually did die, that he ascended that cross, and that he took on, he took on our garments, our Babylonian garments. He bore them on his body. All of our idolatry, all of our adultery, all of our sin and rebellion, he bore that on his body. So that he could do what? So that he could give to us freely by grace through faith the wedding garment of his own righteousness. 
He took upon our garments to give us wedding garments of pure righteousness, bright and brilliant. Those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb believe that God received his sacrifice and was pleased with it. Those invited to the marriage supper believe that Jesus Christ truly did bear our sins, grant us forgiveness, has invited us in, and has made a place for us at the table. If you know Christ, if you have on that wedding garment, then you have a place at the table reserved for you. Christ did that work on the cross. That's how much your husband loves you, that he would give his life for sinners like us. You'll be invited, and you are invited, because you're wearing the wedding garment that was purchased by the blood of the groom, him dying for you so that you could be his. It's such a beautiful love story. Matthew chapter 22, I want to end on a warning for you. The parable of the wedding feast again. The wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? How did you get in here without faith? How did you get in here without the righteous deeds that are a product of your faith? How did you get in here? Then the king said to the attendants, listen, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said this, for many are called, but few are chosen. Friends, the wedding of the Lamb is fast approaching. I want to encourage you to wait for that day. Don't turn to an idol. Don't marry an idol. Don't give your life to anyone or anything other than Christ. Wait for it. Prepare for it. By what? By holding on to your faith. Walk in faith. And have your faith produce all the great deeds of righteousness that the Holy Spirit will do in you. And lastly, keep your invitation secure by holding on to what? The testimony of Jesus. Keep your invitation secure. Do not forsake the testimony of Christ. Believe in your heart that he not only died for your sins, but he's coming back. He's coming back for us. Oh, what a day that will be when what? When my Jesus, when our Jesus, we shall see. When he comes back for his bride, he will return for you, for all who remain faithful in this engagement period, so that we too can be seated at the table and experience the truly inexpressible joy of not only being with the lamb, but being loved by the lamb. Amen? Let me pray. Father, truly one of the greatest texts in all of sacred scripture. Revealing to us the, the incredible blessing of being married to your son and then seated at the table. There may be no higher thought for us, Father, in terms of the joy that you have in store. I ask that you would make this so clear to us, Lord, that we would not take off our wedding garment even for a moment. That we would not forsake our faith for the flesh. That we would not turn to sin or an idol to indulge for that moment because of what awaits Father, magnify this in our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do this. Make this marriage, this union, and this feast so grand in our hearts and minds that we will want to live as pure virgins, as pure spiritual virgins as your people. I ask that you would do that for Christ Community Church. Do that for my brothers and sisters. Do that for your true church throughout the world that we might be a brilliant testimony in this very, very dark place, and that we might show people the hope they can have too of being married to God and sitting at that table.
I ask that you would do this, Father. Do it for us. Bless us right now with this revelation and do it for your glory that you might be praised amongst the nations because of this truth. I ask these things in Christ, the Lamb's precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.